All right, let's take our Bibles then, church family. Let's turn to the epistle of 1 John and chapter 5 this morning. 1 John chapter 5, go all the way near the end of your Bible if you're still learning your way around. And if you need a Bible this morning, Charlie's in the back. He'd be glad to share a copy of God's Word we keep back there for you uh, who might need that. And then there's this uh, little note page in your bulletin. Uh, I'd appreciate it if you would grab that. That will be a help to me uh, and to you as we move through. And the verses that come into view for us in our ongoing study of this amazing little letter today are verses 6 through 12 of chapter 5. And the truth that this section is going to trumpet, as you see there on your note page, is this. Whoever has the Son, that being Jesus, whoever has Jesus has life. Now, do you believe that? You believe that, yeah? You believe it and you boldly declare it to anybody who will listen. Yes, I know that you do. I believe that you do. That is our... That is the great message that we bring to a world that doesn't know Jesus yet. Whoever has the Son has life. We're going to talk about that this morning. Allow me to read verses 6 through 12 for us. And if you'll follow along in your Bible, let me introduce this next section in our study. And we're certainly uh, winding her down and coming toward the uh, finish line here in our study of 1 John. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Lord, may you just open our eyes to the truth of your word this morning and we say amen. Amen. The Apostle John, 85 years old, faithfully serving as the pastor and overseer of several churches in late first century who are being assaulted by false teaching, has been relentlessly hammering home throughout this entire letter the truth that a correct view of the Lord Jesus is absolutely essential if you are going to be saved, if you're going to be a real Christian. That was the Apostles' theme from the moment that we opened our series the very first day several months ago. Chapter 1, verse 2, John will say, We have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made known to us, Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he asked rhetorically, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is God's promised Messiah? In chapter 3, this is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us. He sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Do you detect a theme? Yes, it is Jesus, isn't it? Now, last time when we stepped into chapter 5 for the first time, uh, verse 1 said 
be, that, that, that the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That was verse 1 of chapter 5. How can we not mention verse 13 of chapter 5? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The emphasis is on knowing. And what is the emphasis on knowing? Jesus, yes? Knowing Jesus. That believing in him brings eternal life and relationship with God. Now, John has spent four plus chapters describing what real Christians who possess real spiritual life look like, how you can tell the real from the fake. And it does all come down to Jesus. And a correct view of him, who he is, what he has done in your life is essential to a salvation that truly saves. He is the focal point of redemptive history. And and God, by his spirit and by John's pen, has repeatedly testified that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He is eternal life. John has been, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, building a case for Jesus, being our only Savior and the only Savior we will ever need. Amen? Amen. And since that's what John has been doing, building a case for Jesus as Savior, perhaps we would not be surprised this morning that as he marches towards the end of his letter, he will in this section introduce two key words. The words testify and testimony, which are courtroom terms. You would find them in a courtroom. If you're building a case, then you want to give testimony that will strengthen your case and no less than eight times in seven verses verses six through twelve we read the word testify or testifies or testimony now that word that the root word for testify and testimony the greek root word is the greek word martis it's a word that appears nearly 175 times in the New Testament. It has the basic meaning of remembering something and then bearing witness to it, testifying to it, uh, giving testimony to what you have seen or heard. Just as an interesting sidebar to this word, because so many people who testified to the true gospel paid with their lives, martis became the root word for our English word, what? Martyr. That's right. One who bears witness to Jesus and pays with their life. The martyr. And that's where that word comes from. John was well aware um, of the Old Testament directive from God in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three, what? Witnesses. And he knew the, uh, the Apostle Paul's injunction. In the New Testament, we had the Old Testament word from God. Paul reiterates that in 2 Corinthians 13.1. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. John knew that. If you're going to build a case, you've got to have witnesses. And so diligent here to cross his T's and dot his I's so that false teachers aren't going to come back later and say, Hey, John, you built a flimsy case for Jesus He here produces three witnesses that will all testify on behalf of Jesus being God's son and the only savior who can truly save. Church family today in a court of law, we know what a witness is. 
It's someone who, who testifies about what they know or what they've heard or what they have seen. Their testimony is used to build a convincing legal argument. Miss Scarlett, on the night of March 11th, on the night that everybody changed their clocks, did you or did you not see Colonel Mustard go into the billiard room carrying the candlestick and saying that he was going to take care of Professor Plum once and for all? That is testimony, isn't it? That's giving witness. A witness testifies to the truth as they know it. And so John calls on three witnesses to verify that Jesus is the Son of God and all who believe in him receive eternal life. Look again at verses 6 through 9. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, just a a human court and testimony there, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Now, we read this passage, and some of us might be scratching our heads a little bit, especially with those two witnesses, water and blood. The spirit we get. But water and blood, uh, you may be wondering, what in the world is that? And if you are wondering that way, you're in good company. Down through the centuries, Bible scholars and heavyweight theological dudes, they've, they've, they've given their opinions and their ideas about what these two terms refer to. And surprisingly, they haven't always agreed. Some, for example, have suggested that the water and the blood refers to the water and the blood that flowed from Jesus' side when the Roman soldier plunged his spear into Jesus as he hung on the cross. And they think that's what John is referring to. But if you stop and think about that for a second, that would not really testify that Jesus was God's son and savior. That would basically testify that Jesus was dead, right? That's really what that would do. And so it's probably not a strong place to land. Others see in these terms a reference to believers' baptism, your baptism, my baptism, upon confession of faith in Jesus. And they think that the blood refers to uh, communion remembrance, celebrating the Lord's table as we do on a regular basis. But if you stop again and think about that, believers' baptism and communion, those are actually our testimony, though, aren't there? Our witness to Jesus being our Savior. It's really not the Father's witness concerning his son and so that that doesn't really work and then there are some who perhaps think it's the old testament sacrificial system of water purification and and animal sacrifice and that john is appealing to the old testament as a proof for the deity and the salvation power of jesus but there's just not a lot of strong exegetical or even contextual reason to go there and so as you look on your note page this morning We're probably on our best footing if we see the water as pointing to Jesus' baptism, his baptism, and the blood referring to Jesus' death upon the cross. These two notable events, if you stop and think about this, they they sort of bookend Jesus' earthly ministry, don't they? The start of it and the conclusion of it. And at both of those, the father is most definitely testifying concerning his son. 
Again, the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and that pretty much stands on its own. We'll, we'll touch on that in a second. Now, I mentioned a moment ago these false teachers that John is battling in the late first century within the churches that he is pastoring. John knows that he is confronting a hugely dangerous heresy that is threatening the church. We've talked about it numerous times. That heresy is known as Gnosticism. This heresy said that Jesus was not the son of God. He was just a man. Uh, He was a very good man and so good, in fact, that he attracted God's attention. And so God put the spirit of Messiah upon him at a certain point in his life. The appeal of this was that it avoided the difficulties of explaining God having to be born or having to explain the dual nature of Jesus being God and man in a person. And if that spirit left Jesus before he dies, which is what Gnosticism said, well, then you don't have God suffering and you don't have God dying. So Gnostic teaching denied the incarnation of Jesus. It denied divine substitution by God for the sinner. And it denied that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah who dies. It was a nasty heresy, skillfully presented, though, and it was winning many converts in the late first century. But we can see through this satanic lie, can't we? We see through it very clearly. If Jesus is just a man, even though he's an unusually good man as men go, he's still a sinner, right? He's still a sinner. Even if the divine nature comes upon him for a certain period of his life, he's still a sinner, and one sinner can never atone for another sinner's sin, right? So the, the argument breaks down immediately. And if Jesus was not God in flesh on the cross... If, if the divine nature left him before he actually died for us, then he really didn't conquer sin, death, and the grave at all, did he? He didn't do that. God didn't do that. So, so how do the three witnesses then that John produces confront this deadly heresy that denied Jesus' deity? Well, let's take each one of them in turn. By the water, John is taking us to that moment in Scripture when Jesus' earthly ministry began. He's always been God. He was the God-man from the moment of the incarnation onward. But it was at Jesus' baptism that the Father gave his own personal testimony concerning the deity of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, remember by John the Baptist at the Jordan River, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he, that is John the Baptist, saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, what? This is my beloved son. He is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now, is that a testimony? (laughs) That's a divine testimony. And so God makes this declaration, and it's even verbal. It's audible. And the physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit added this visual confirmation to the Father's audible declaration. This is my Son whom I love. God is saying, this is the Messiah, my Messiah, my deliverer, my solution to the sin issue in this world. 
John the Baptist had just declared prior to this moment by the Spirit of God that Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? So John makes that declaration, and then God kind of adds the exclamation point, this is my Son. I am well pleased with Him. So he's affirming by his own testimony at that moment. And then John supplies this second witness, the blood, which we would understand to be representing Jesus' death on the cross. As he had at his baptism, the Father gave striking testimony to the deity of his Son in the miraculous events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. If you stop and think about this for a moment, Matthew 27 Verse 45, we're told that during the crucifixion, in the middle of the day, a supernatural darkness falls on the entire, the entire land, symbolizing the Father turning away as His Son Jesus becomes sin for you and me. You remember that moment? Darkness falls over the whole land. And in that moment, what does Jesus cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me God looking upon his own son but his son has taken our sin upon himself and he must turn away at that moment of Jesus death there was another astonishing miracle the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom I would submit to you that that's a declaration a testimony by God at the moment of Jesus death it's Matthew 27:51. if you recall the curtain there was this huge curtain located in the great temple and it separated the outer court from the the holy of holies which represented the place where god resided and it was a four inch thick curtain it was huge it was very high and heavy um, and and it says in the text that the curtain was torn from top to bottom not by a person but by god himself and it was his way of testifying or declaring that because of jesus death the way was now open for a sinner to gain access into the very presence of God. What a powerful testimony. But there's even more. For as Jesus cried out, it is finished. You remember those words? It is finished. Not I am finished, but it is finished. The redemption work is, is finished. We're told that the, that the earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And, and their appearance in bodily form in, in resurrection there after Jesus' death foreshadows Jesus' own resurrection. It's a declaration. It's a witness to the resurrection power, Jesus' victory over death. And, you know, even that battle-hardened Roman soldier, that centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion, do you remember what he says? Matthew 27, 54. Truly, this is the Son of God. Now, that's a man's testimony, but it's part of the story of the blood. And so for John, the point of these two witnesses' testimony, the water and the blood, was that Jesus didn't become the Son of God or, or become the Messiah somewhere along the way. And he was just a man who, for a moment, took on this, this new role. He has always been and will always be the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead to pay the sinner's debt. Amen? That's the declaration. That's the testimony of those two witnesses. Now then there's the third witness that John enlists. No less than the Holy Spirit, in this case, verse 6. 
And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The truth. The Spirit witnesses to the truth. How the Spirit testifies, John doesn't really go into detail on that. But he may well have been thinking back to uh, the night before Jesus was crucified where Jesus, John was with Jesus in the upper room. And, and in John chapter 16, Jesus promised his followers that he would not leave them as orphans. Do you remember that? It's one of the great promises of Jesus to us. He would not leave us as orphans. He would send to us who? The Holy Spirit. Jesus would do that. Jesus said, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He will speak into those three places. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and what? Declare it. He will bear witness to it. He will testify to it to you. And so the Holy Spirit's role, Jesus tells us, in the world since Jesus ascended back to heaven is to bear witness to the reality of Jesus as God and as Savior. He convicts sinners. He, he presents righteousness. And he reminds and warns that, man, there is judgment coming. He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, when the Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will what? He's going to bear witness about me. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, how do we come to see and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is deity, and that he is the Savior of the world. How do we come to embrace that? Well, we might say, well, you know, on the surface, Tim, it just seems like we're exposed to that, that truth, and it makes sense to us. It sounds credible to us, and it is desirable, so we believe it, right? We could say that through the teaching and modeling of our parents, perhaps through, a, through a, a, a powerful or compelling sermon or a book or maybe the words that a friend tells us over a cup of coffee or, or some, some, somehow we are moved from a place of ambivalence or maybe ignorance concerning Jesus to a place of active faith and trust in his death and in his resurrection. But there's infinitely more going on that, than that we just believed right there's more going on someone who never looks under the hood of a car just thinks the car goes down the road all by itself right they don't know there's a motor under there and there's fuel and there's thousands of working parts that make that thing go they never looked under the hood but there's a motor and there's fuel and there's parts we can think we simply believe the gospel because we're saved. We heard it and we believed. But what's really happening under the hood of our life to make that happen? Well, the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to the truth, right? Quickening our minds, quickening our souls, 
convicting us, convincing us that we're sinners, that, that, that we deserve, deserve divine judgment. The Holy Spirit is doing that within us. And he shows us the true Jesus as, as the Son of God and as the Savior of the world, our Savior. And he even gifts us with the ability to believe. He gifts us faith, right? You didn't come up with faith. God gave you that as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You didn't even come up with that. We don't just somehow believe. No, the Holy Spirit witnesses to us. And so John calls upon all three witnesses and he says, verse 7, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the baptism and the cross, and these three do what? They all agree. If we receive the testimony of men in a, in a human court, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the spirit, are essentially speaking on behalf of God himself regarding the identity of his son. And they all agree, John says. It's a pretty powerful argument. They all agree. I recall a story about four high school boys who were late to their morning class one day. They enter the classroom and they solemnly tell the teacher that they were late because their car had a flat tire. And sympathetically, the teacher smiles and tells them, well, that's, you know, that's too bad because there was a, a test. You missed a test this morning because you were late. But she says, I'm willing to let you make it up. And she then puts them each in a place where they can't talk to each other or see each other. And she says, the test has only one question. If you get it right, if all four of you get it right, you get an A. The question is, which tire was flat, right? <laughs> which tire was flat? Now, if all four are in agreement, then it's a compelling argument that the tire really was flat. But if they don't all have the same tire, we're going to wonder if somebody isn't lying, right? Baptism, the cross, the Holy Spirit. They're all speaking for God himself, says verse 9. And they are testifying to the deity and to the saving work of Jesus. This testimony is recorded for us in the Holy Scripture and the opportunity to believe it is available to anyone who will read the scriptures. The question before each of us is, do we believe the witnesses, right? Do I believe God's witnesses? Or are they all liars? If you'll turn your note page over, that brings us to think about our response to the testimony of these witnesses. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony where? In himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. John says that to ignore the three witnesses or to deny what they have witnessed to is to deny what God himself has said about Jesus. As a matter of fact, it is far worse than that. Verse 10 says that if you deny these witnesses or reject their testimony, you are making God out to be a what? A liar. 
In other words, what a person does with God's testimony concerning Jesus as His Son and as the sinner's Savior, that determines your eternal destiny. This is a big deal. Now, there are only two responses that that are uh, available to us. Either you believe God's testimony or you reject it. There's not this place in the middle where you can land and kind of just be fuzzy on that. No one can remain neutral. We know that because Jesus himself says, Matthew 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is what? Against me. And whoever does not gather with me, what? Scatters. You're either in or you're out. You're not in the middle. Nobody is. And the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, says verse 10 of this chapter 5. When we genuinely believe in who Jesus is and what he has done for us, the three witnesses' testimony find their home where? Right here in our hearts, in our minds. Their testimony becomes part of us. In fact, here John ramps up the seriousness of not believing the witness of God, saying that the unbeliever actually accuses God by their unbelief of being a liar. Do you think that's a big deal? Man, that is a big deal. To deny that Jesus Christ is, 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 is God is to refuse to believe the testimony that God has rendered concerning His Son by multiple witnesses, the Spirit, the baptism, and the cross. The severest blaspheme I believe that we could perhaps even utter to God is, God, you are a liar. Now, I doubt there are very many people who would ever step into that place verbally. But by one's unbelief, that is exactly what you're saying to God. According to to these words. And God's not a liar, is he? No. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God is not a liar. But if we don't believe what God has said, we make him out to be a liar. And so listen very carefully when I say rejecting God's witnesses concerning his son is not just some unfortunate thing to be pitied in somebody's life. It's not something that we just kind of overlook because we don't want to offend our friend and and continue to talk about Jesus with them. Unbelief is a heinous sin and an unimaginable offense to a holy God. Those guilty of rejecting Jesus must not be be patronized or or coddled or comforted or or just kind of you know it's okay if it, you need more time to think about Jesus they no no the unbeliever needs to be challenged right challenged and and, and called to believe the witnesses and repent and because what the rejection of Jesus is a declaration that God you're a liar You know, one of the charges that God will level against every unbeliever who stands before him one day at the judgment, one of the charges God will level is, you made me out to be a liar by your unbelief. 
And there will be no rebuttal to God's charge. Just a terrifying silence because the unbeliever will know that the charge is true. I rejected your witnesses. I made you out to be a liar. But because God is gracious and loving towards sinners, that doesn't need to be the outcome. And we say, Amen. Because there is the promise of the testimony here, faithfully delivered by the three witnesses. The promise is in verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I would submit to you, church family, that there are perhaps not two other verses in all of Scripture that are more wonderful and more terrifying at the same time. By this point in our study of John's letter, we all understand the code. Son means Jesus, right? And life means eternal life. Life with God. The simplicity and the power of these two verses is in the way that the Holy Spirit links having Jesus with having eternal life. To have one means you get the other, right? To not have Jesus is to what? Not have eternal life. You don't have life if you don't have Jesus. To have eternal life means that you have Jesus, true identity and mission here in your heart. You understand who He is and you understand what He's done for you. And because you have Jesus, you have life. If you don't have Jesus, there's no life. No eternal life. So what does it mean to have the Son? Verse 12. Whoever has the Son. It's a term of, it's, it's, it's an expression of relationship, isn't it? To have Jesus means you're in relationship. When I become a Jesus follower, when I trust Jesus alone as my Savior, He becomes my Savior and I become His disciple and we are in a forever relationship from that moment on. It's like a wedding. Uh, As those vows are made between a man and a woman, the the, the groom uh, makes his vows to his his future wife and she to him, and and, and now the the woman becomes his. His, and and, and he becomes hers, and they have each other. There is this, this union. And that happens with you and me upon confession of faith in the Lord Jesus. There is this union. Back in chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 13, a place where we hung out one morning, John told us, by this we know that we abide, we dwell, we reside, we have our home in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. He's come to live inside of us. 1 John 4, 13. Now here in 5.10 we're told, We were just told that when we believe in Jesus, we have the testimony of three witnesses. And where are they? They are in us, right? Their testimony is in us. The water, the blood, the Spirit's testimony in us. But this is actually more. We actually have God living inside of us. The Apostle Paul frames it in this way, a verse that you know very well. I have been crucified with Christ... It's no longer I who live anymore. It is Christ who lives in me, right? 
Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By faith I have Jesus. Do you have Jesus this morning? The only way you have him is by faith, right? Faith in who he is and what he has done. I have him relationally. You testify that you have him relationally. And like a bride or a groom, the relationship carries with it realities. The, The groom's family becomes the bride's family and her possessions become his possessions and they share everything together. When we believe in Jesus... That relationship has realities, redeeming realities. We have the Holy Spirit. God the Father becomes our Father and Jesus' Father. And the eternal life that resides in the Trinity, man, that is imparted to us. Their life becomes our life. Now we have eternal life. For you and me, fellow Christian, as people living in a sin-infected, dying world where the death rate is 100%, right? There is nothing more wonderful than this. Whoever has the Son has life. There is nothing more wonderful, nothing more glorious than that. Whoever has Jesus has eternal life. You have eternal life. The purpose of God's testimony through the water and the blood and the spirit is that sinners might receive eternal life. And eternal life involves far more than merely thinking in a chronological sense that my life never ends. It's way more than that, right? The essence of eternal life is the imparting of the forever life of the Trinity into the life of you, sinner. Me, sinner, their life imparted to us. It's the everlasting life of the Godhead that triumphed over sin and death and grave and hell that are imparted into my life. And so as we wrap things up here this morning, we head for the desert, let's go out with just three reminders of what eternal life is for you and me right now. This is hardly exhaustive, but let these three truths lift our souls to the place where then we can wrap up with some songs that will declare our praise and our gratitude. First, we want to be reminded that eternal life is is every real Christian's present possession. Do you believe that? That you have eternal life right now? Yeah. Look carefully again at verse 12. I'm sure you already caught this, but don't miss the tense here. Whoever has the Son, what? Has, present tense, life, eternal life. Every word here is inspired by God. It is trustworthy. It doesn't say whoever has the Son will have life or whoever has the Son might get life one day. It says, present tense, if you have Jesus as your only Savior and Lord, you have, present tense, life. Now, if there's a commonly shared misconception among real Christians, it is that eternal life is someday and it's out there. But that's not true, right? It is right here, right now, in you. And it never ends. Whoever has the Son has life. If you are a Christian, 
a real Christian. You have the life of God in you right now and it will never, ever be taken from you. It is eternal. Does that get a praise, God? The God life of the Trinity within me right now. Are you kidding? And to be sure, God is certainly interested in in, in our future experience of this life. But it's a now experience. It's not just a, a, a then experience. The spiritual vibrancy that is that is who God's life is all about. That spiritual vibrancy is transforming your life right now, isn't it? That eternal life is changing you right now. Transforming your sinful habits. Causing us to, to, to love righteousness and want to obey God's word. It's, it, it, it's, it's sustaining you in the midst of, of very difficult trials. And it's moving you to delight in worshiping God more and more and more. That's eternal life at work in you when those things are happening. It's motivating you to strive to love your Christian brothers and sisters and to love those who don't know Jesus yet. That's the transforming power of eternal life inside of you right now. And, 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 and it's what compels you to want to build a, 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 a Jesus-centered home as a mom or a dad. It's the eternal life of God within you that is expressing itself in that way. It's within you right now. It's eternal life. Now, whoever has the Son has life. Secondly, there on your note page, eternal life is unending life with Jesus after death. We don't want to just step aside and not not notice that. As Jesus stood outside the tomb of a dear friend named Lazarus in John chapter 11, he says to uh, the grieving sister Martha, he says to Martha, I am what? I am resurrection and I am life. He's talking about eternal life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall what? Never die. Do you believe this? (laughs) Amen. I believe this, we say. Though eternal life is a now and present possession, we cannot think about it and not rejoice in the truth that for the real Christian, physical death is just the door we step into to enter into the fullest of all relationships with Jesus. See him face to face. See the scars in his hands and his feet, his side. Jesus is the resurrection and the life and the one who believes never dies. They never experience the second death of judgment in hell that awaits all who have rejected the three witnesses. That's not going to be your story if you are in Jesus. Amen? On the night before Jesus went to the cross for us, he prayed. He made this request of his father. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be what? With me? Where I am. He's talking about eternal life, isn't he? With him forever. Because where is he? He is in heaven. And he is God. And his life never ends. The promise is that we will die physically, but we will never, ever truly die. Can you get excited about that thought? That's why the sting of death and the power of the grave have been removed from our lives. We do not look at death like those who do not know Jesus. Because we have eternal life. 
And then a third thought, eternal life is a taste of future life, future joy, right now. And this comes out of verses 11 and 12 of John 5, 1 John 5. God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. When God the Father accepted the death of his Son in our place and raised Jesus from the dead, that was the moment when the life of the eternal age invaded this present world. Right? That was the moment. The cross and the resurrection... That's where the life of the eternal age invaded time and space and became accessible to you and me. That moment. It's right now, isn't it? It's not out there. It's right now. When we meet God through faith in Jesus, at that entry point of the cross and the resurrection, we receive and begin to experience eternal life in this present world. We have the seed. We have eternal life now. But what the full flower will be, man, we don't know yet, do we? We just know that what we have is the tiny seed. It's going to grow into something unimaginably glorious. And we're going to be experiencing that. Not for a day or a week or a month, but for what? Forever and ever. Because it's eternal life. Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it, what? Abundantly. Three witnesses have offered up their testimony. All agree the testimony is true. The question you and I and every person must answer is, now, what will I do with it? Right? Or what have I done with it? What will you do with this testimony? Believe it and have life or reject it and not have life. Tough, tough decision, right? (laughs) I don't think so. Church family, let's pray. What glorious truths we have touched upon once again every Sunday. It's the same Heavenly Father. You just lavish a, a rich banquet before us of your truth. And how glad we are that today you have reminded us that you have borne witness to the deity of your son and the power of his death and his resurrection in our life, that he truly is our savior and with him comes eternal life. We praise you for that truth. Lord, our hearts break, not as much as they should. We will confess that to you, but our hearts break that we all have friends and even family and, and coworkers and neighbors who have at up to this moment, they have rejected your witness And by that, they are calling you a liar. And that should break our hearts and it should compel us with even greater vigor and boldness to go to those friends and family and tell them the truth. That you are life. Life abundant. Life eternal. Give us the courage. Give us the compassion and the love to do so. And Lord, may we live in the richness of of this glorious truth that to have the Son, to have your Son, is to have eternal life. Let us sing that truth to you now as an expression of our gratitude. And we just say, thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.